We are uh, in the book of John. We're walking through the book of John, verse by verse, and we're actually just starting chapter 2. So if you want to flip to John chapter 2 right now, and we're going to read the first 11 verses. John 2, verses 1 to 11. And I'm reading out of the ESV. So if it says this is different than yours, no problem. Uh, okay, here we go. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11 says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, uh, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, thank you that we can know, that we know truth, that we can know truth from God, straight from you, Lord, and that we can know what you are like. And that as we study your word, your spirit just speaks to us and blesses us and convicts us and encourages us and does what we need. So, Spirit, would you just come? We invite you. Please keep coming. Keep ministering to us. Speak to us as we just study and wrestle with what your word says. And, Lord, I just ask that you, Jesus, like it said in the end of these verses, would, you would manifest your glory in our midst as we study your word. Come, show us your glory, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I have a, if you know me, you know this. If not, I'm a, you're going to know it right now. I love Diet Coke too much. It's not a good thing, and I'm working on it. But um, I love Diet Coke, and uh, it was a very tough day for me when the Costco food court switched from Coke to Pepsi. Like, I literally used to go there all the time, and I have not gone since they switched to Pepsi. Like, I, I don't do it. It's not water, like... It's like, what do you, I can't go there, okay? And if you're a restaurant and you don't carry Diet Coke, like, I'm not, I don't go to that restaurant. That's literally the truth. I just, I cannot do that. And you know what's worse than when something runs out of Diet Coke? Life, listen, life runs out of wine. Okay, what are you saying, Bo? Listen, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I'm saying. There comes a point when the Diet Coke runs dry, the wine runs dry, the fun stops, and joy like flees away. That's a true statement. Uh, some modern celebrities have like been honest with us and said, hey, I have everything I could have ever wanted. And there just comes a point where like it's not satisfying. Like life has lost its savor and its goodness, and it all just tastes the same. And uh, if I could say anything, in fact, the title of this sermon would be this. 
the wine always runs out, okay? The wine always runs out of life. It'll run out. Um, I didn't know this, but as I was studying, I found out about Ernest Hemingway. You guys obviously know, I knew who he is, um, but I didn't know much about his life. Apparently, he was like one of the coolest humans there's ever been. Like he was adventurous. Like he did, he was a reporter. Okay, listen, he was a reporter in a local newspaper. He was an ambulance driver in World War I. He lived in Europe for years. He was involved in the Spanish Civil War. He was friends with all the celebrities of his day, famous bullfighters, writers like F. Scott Fitzgerald. In addition to the fact that he was like a, one of the most successful writers ever. Um, and then he ended his life by shooting himself in the face with a shotgun. I did not know that. I was like, what the heck? I, was, I read that and I was like, what the heck? And, and the point is this, Ernest Hemingway experienced the goodness of life. Anything and everything life had to offer, he like got it. And then he shot himself in the face. Because you can spend, and people do, and we are so tempted to spend our days and our pursuits and our energy and our time chasing the marrow of life. Like I want all that life has to offer and there will come a day when it will run out. There will come a day when it is not going to satisfy you. In fact, God was like, I want to prove this point so much that he wrote an entire book of the Bible through Solomon. It's what Ecclesiastes is about. If you ever read Ecclesiastes, you're like, this is so weird and depressing because he experienced everything there was to experience. And he says, you know what? It's meaningless. It's folly. It's like chasing the wind. And I got everything I could have ever wanted. And it's exactly the same as before I got it. It's the truth is that the wine runs out. The wine will always run out. And this story in John chapter 2 is a story literally of wine running out of a party. Okay, So we're going to get a quick context what's going on. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus and his disciples and his family are at a local wedding. Okay, And in that culture at that time, the weddings were like the social highlight. They're like, they were the thing you would go to. It was like the club and parties and celebration and food and feasting. It was everything combined. It was always done at a wedding. And they would often last an entire week of partying. Like can't even really imagine that. Like just picture a party lasting an entire week. And they didn't have Diet Coke then. They didn't have a variety of drinks. You know what they had? They had water and they had wine. Okay, they like, and maybe some milk, right? But I don't know if you want to drink milk at a party, right? So they had water and they had wine, okay? And so the, a wedding is like the highlight when it happens. And the, like, the thing that you look forward to is the wine. That was like, when the wine runs out, the party stops. You do not want wine to run out at the biggest social event, okay? In verse three, Jesus' mom says, they have no wine. Now, it's hard for us. We're Americans. We've probably all been to many weddings without alcohol, right? Like, that's, that's a thing um, that's really common, especially when they're at churches. Um, do you know what it would be like? It'd be like going to a wedding, and last minute, they'd be like, oh, actually, the DJ can't make it, and the food can't make it. Like, just picture that wedding. What, like, what would we do? We would sit there, usually in the heat, through the ceremony, you're like, oh, this is good. And then you just stand around and be hungry. Like, that's the worst wedding there's ever been. That's what it's like for this situation. The wine ran out. Like, what are we, why are we doing this? The party should just end, okay? And so, so the wine runs out at the biggest social event in that community. And then look at Jesus' response in verse four. Jesus said to his mom, who tells him, they have no wine. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
it's funny when you read the Bible and you're like, what is, Jesus is so weird sometimes. And he seems really rude and what's going on. Uh, at, if you like, understand the context and whatever, he wasn't being rude. He was actually just being formal. Like that was like a formal way of addressing someone. Um, people say it was at this moment that she stopped being his mom and became his savior because he's like, hey, I know you're my mom, but like now I'm just going to address you formally because I'm Jesus, you know, like I'm God. But he's not being rude. He's just being formal. But here's a question. Why would Jesus respond to his mom like this? Jesus, they're out of wine. Woman, my hour has not yet come. What does this have to do with me? Like, what is Jesus saying here? Why would he respond with those two statements? Uh, what does this have to do with me? And my hour has not yet come. Okay, you guys need to pay attention for a second. I'm gonna get like, we're gonna get deep Bible for a second, okay? And this is gonna be awesome, okay? In this moment, in verse four, when Jesus says those two statements, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. come. We begin to see why John, the author of this book, starts off the ministry of Jesus this way, okay? Uh, we, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about the prologue, the first, like, whatever, 18 verses, and we said all the themes in a good prologue are there, all the foreshadowing are there, and John's a really thoughtful, good writer, and so the first major thing Jesus does is significant, and John chose this, and the phrases and the words and everything he's recording, he could have recorded a lot more, and he chose these words of Jesus for a reason, and we begin, if we dig deep, to understand why John would pick this random story about a social event going bad to start the entire book about Jesus. Why would he do this, okay? Uh, just to prove that point, in John 20, verse 30, he says, Jesus did so many other things, but I wrote of a few that you may believe that he's the son of God. And in fact, the book of John only records, guess how many miracles it records? Just guess. Anybody throw it out there? Seven. Seven miracles. He only recorded seven miracles. You read Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jesus is just healing left and right, walking on water, doing all this stuff. John, he only records seven miracles of Jesus, meaning there's a deep, significant point to every miracle he, he shows of who Jesus is. We said the other uh, gospels give you like the details often. John wants you to get like the meaning, the depth of who Jesus is, okay? Um, so what is this miracle about and why does Jesus respond this way? How is he foreshadowing? What's the metaphor? What's this sign that he's trying to show us about Jesus? Okay, two things. We're gonna look at the first sentence first. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Okay. Uh, if you're single, most of us are single, like not married. Um, have you ever been to a wedding and it's like beautiful and amazing, but also kind of like depressing inside? If you like experienced that, I experienced that before I was married, right? You're like, you're thinking about your own wedding. You're thinking, oh, we'll never be able to afford this. Or who am I even going to marry? Will I ever marry? And you know, you just have that experience in your head during a wedding. Okay. John is doing this for a reason. He opens up the first sign of seven signs of Jesus' life at the context of a wedding. Do you know how John ends like the Bible, book of Revelation? At a wedding. And do you know what the first thing we're going to do when we finally see Jesus and he makes everything right? We're going to be at a wedding called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. So John opens up the story of Jesus with a wedding and he ends the story of Jesus with a wedding. And it's going to be Jesus's wedding. And do you know why Jesus responds to his mom? What does this have to do with me? Listen, he's saying, mom, this isn't my wedding. 
I'm going to drink wine and celebrate and feast at my wedding with my bride, but this isn't it. So like, you know, I know you're like helping with a wedding, but this isn't my wedding. And listen, this is really important. Stay with me. One of the absolute like scandalous, radical things about the God of the Bible is he doesn't only want your worship. He doesn't only want your obedience. He wants like your love and affection. And he, God, uses the, almost the most scandalous metaphor of his love for us. He says, you know what it's like? It's like a bride and a groom getting married. Did you know, it, I mean, this is like scandalous. God, who is perfectly holy and mighty and amazing and infinite, desires a close, intimate relationship with you, with his bride, with his people. God wants it to be like a wedding, okay? And, and honestly, be like honest. Can you describe your relationship with Jesus like that? Can you describe your relationship like, man, like I'm like a bride about to get married? Can you, can you like describe your relationship with God about that? And do you know what's crazy? As the Bible develops this theme, we have been an impure bride. God is like, I just love you and I've pursued you and I wanna be with you. And we've been cheating on him from the beginning. That is what is true of us, his bride. Sin isn't, it is, but it's not just disobedience. It's not just rebellion. It's like adultery on a spouse. Our sin is like cheating on that closest, most intimate of relationships. And Jesus is the husband that says, I'm coming after you anyways, and I want to be with you anyways. You are an unfaithful bride, but I'm a faithful husband, and I'm going to pursue you literally to the ends of the earth to be with you. And then he was the husband that like laid down his life for his bride and his blood that he shed purifies his bride and makes his bride white as snow. And now if you have come to Jesus, you are a spotless bride, like a bride on her wedding day, walking down the aisle. Like I don't deserve this. I haven't earned this, but because of Jesus, because of who my husband is, I am now clean and spotless. Jesus loves us like that. And so he's saying to his mom, it's not, it's not time yet. He's thinking about his wedding. He's thinking like, there's going to be a wedding and this isn't it. But he started, John wants us to start there. And then he says this to his mom, mom, my hour has not yet come. That's the second thing he says. John uses that phrase, his hour, four other times. Uh, in John 7, John 8, John 12, and John, John 12 twice. And do you know what he refers to every single time, his hour? It refers to his death on a cross. And Jesus wasn't just thinking about his wedding at this moment. He was thinking about his death. He was thinking about the road it would take to get to his wedding. He was thinking about what he would do for his bride. And when his mom brings up the fact there's no wine at this wedding, do you know what Jesus is thinking about? He's thinking about another cup that he would have to drink. One the Old Testament referred to as the cup of the wrath of God. He's thinking about, I'm going to drink that cup. And he's thinking about this thing he's going to create known as the Lord's Supper or communion, where he would take wine and he would say, this is like my blood that I poured out for my bride. And at this moment of celebration, Jesus knows what it's like to be a single person thinking about suffering. He's literally thinking about, I'm, he's thinking as everyone's celebrating, I'm going to suffer and die. I'm going to drink the cup of the wrath of God. Like 
John is so juicy and deep when you get into like what, why is he saying this and all these metaphors, like this, it's there. That's what Jesus is thinking about. And Jesus says, I love my bride so much and I know what I'm gonna go through and I'm gonna be with my bride forever. So he's like responding to his mom. Do you know it's not my hour? It's like a random thing to say, but he's thinking about his death. What does this have to do with me? It's not my wedding. But then we know he's not just saying, I don't want anything to do with this because, and his mom somehow knows and she's like, she tells the servants, do whatever he says, okay? So it's such a random interaction. Jesus, they're out of wine. Woman, this, this, is my, this isn't, what does it have to do with me? It's not my hour. And then she's like, do what he says. That's what happens. It doesn't really make sense, but it's the story and there's a reason. So verse five, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, quick note. Mary's words are like the best mom advice you could ever hear, okay? Hey, you know my son, Jesus? You know how moms brag on their sons? You know my son, Jesus? Do whatever he tells you, okay? Just picture that. Wherever you are, picture Mary saying, you know Jesus? Do whatever he tells you. And Jesus is about to tell these guys to do some weird things, and it was good that they would listen to Jesus. Okay, listen, Jesus is gonna tell you to do some things you don't understand, and they're gonna feel ridiculous. And you're like, Jesus, what are you saying? Whenever you feel like that, just hear Mary saying, do whatever he tells you. We're not always gonna know what he's saying. It's not always gonna make sense, but this is the best mom advice there has ever been. Do whatever Jesus says. It won't always make sense, but do it anyways. And so verse six, look what he says to do. Verse six and seven says this. Now there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's like 250 pounds just in of water. Um, And then it says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Okay, this is a really strange thing for Jesus to do at a wedding. This is like holy jars for washing. He's like, fill them with water. Um, And if you're a servant, you're like, well, that's like not for drinking, and we're out of wine, and you want me to fill these things with water. But listen, they did what he told them. And, and here's, this is significant. John didn't have to tell us about these six jars that were there for the Jewish rites of purification, but he did, and there's a reason. These jars were for the Jewish uh, symbol that we are unclean before God. If you read Leviticus, which you should sometime, uh, it's a lot about being unclean. And what do we have to do to be clean before God? And they would have this water to be like, it was symbolic that I'm, I'm gonna be cleansed before God. And do you know what Jesus does with these old jars of like the old system of being cleansed? He says, I'm going to fill them with something new. I'm going to fill them with wine. Now, how are we cleansed from our sin? Anybody? The blood of Jesus. And you remember like John's deep and he's making all these connections. And do you know what the blood of Jesus is like? It's like wine. And in communion, he says, this is like my blood. And what Jesus is doing here is he's taking these old symbols of how you could be clean. He says, I'm going to make a new way to be clean. It's with my blood. It's weird and it's awesome. He's like, this, I'm doing a new thing. And I will truly make you clean. Listen, if you had just slept with someone the night before and then you washed yourself with water, you're not really feeling clean. Do you know what Jesus says? I will really make you clean. I will like actually make your soul clean. Jesus is able to actually cleanse you from the inside out. There is no sin that is stronger than the blood of Jesus. And like hear that tonight. No matter how dirty you feel and no matter what the enemy is telling you and accusing you and bringing to mind of how you've made yourself unclean, Jesus says, hey, I can make you clean. And then what happens in verse eight? 
says this. And he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and they did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Okay, I want to do a quick pause. I hope some of you guys had like, when we were reading this, thought, what did, did you say, wine? Jesus made wine? Like he made alcohol? Like Jesus took water and made it alcohol? And like a lot of alcohol? I, I just hope somebody thought that because that's, like, that's in the Bible, okay? I just hope you were like, that's interesting. Um, and I want to just take a quick pause and address us and alcohol, okay? Um, alcohol carries a unique stigma for us in America and our culture and especially our church culture. And as a culture in general, we're terrible at dealing with alcohol. Um, number one, because it's just illegal till you're 21. So you're, our entire life, right, it carries that stigma of like, that's bad. Don't, don't touch that because it's illegal. And it's wrong in and of itself, right? At least some of us carry that stigma, especially if you're a rule follower. You're like, don't do that. That's bad. You have it since like you're a little kid. Uh, many of us have probably drunk some form of alcohol before we were 21. I'm just going to assume that. Um, sorry if I'm thinking the worst of you. I bet someone in here has done that. And now, even if you're 21, do you know what it's associated with? It's associated with rebellion and with like partying and getting drunk, okay? So like that's your association. That's what alcohol is. And then many of you guys um, right now are not 21 and you're just like holding on. Like I want to do this right. I'm going to wait till I'm 21. And you know what happens when you turn 21? You don't like responsibly drink. You're like, yes, I can drink. And then you drink. And then you get drunk and you flirt with drunkenness. Like that is the common thing that happens with a Christian. You hold off, hold off, hold off, and then you just like go for it, okay? That is like what I have seen. So, and on top of that, many of us have seen alcohol abused, like with friends or with family, and we only associate it with like heartache. So listen, we have like no healthy, good associations with alcohol at all. It's like abused or it's rebelling or it's ruining people's lives. Like I bet you almost none of us here, and as a culture, we have we have almost no positive view, a biblical perspective on alcohol, like a Jesus perspective on drinking. And I want us to quickly address that, okay? Here's the deal. Wine, alcohol is not evil. It is actually a gift from God. In this story, it's literally a gift from God. Just think about that. Jesus literally gifted alcohol, okay? Um, Now, the Bible tells us two major things about alcohol. Here they are. If I could sum it all up, it's two major things. Number one, drunkenness is a sin. And number two, alcohol is a gift. Those are like the two things in the Bible. And I'm going to read you a lot of verses real quick. Number one, drunkenness is a sin. We've all heard this, but I'm going to say it. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Romans 13, 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And I will say this, drunkenness is a sin like any other sin, but it has the ability to like utterly ruin people's lives. It has a gnarly ability to ruin lives and families and ministries. And many of you guys have seen it. You've seen it ruin people's lives. So Bible says, hey, drunkenness is a sin. And it will ruin your life. And then it also says, and it's a gift from God. Alcohol is a gift. I'm going to read you a couple verses. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. You cause the grass, talking to God, to grow for the livestock, plants for man to accumulate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. 
oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Jeremiah 31, verse 12. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Mount Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil. And here's 1 Timothy, this is a funny one, 5.23. Don't drink only water, you ought to drink a little wine. That's in the Bible. Um, that's, that's what the Bible says. Listen, drunkenness is a sin, and it's, alcohol is a gift from God. Do you know what it's like? It's like sex. Guess who came up with that? God did, right? But if you use it however you want, you're going to ruin a lot of things. But it's a gift from God to be used rightly. It's kind of like a gun, right? It's a thing. It doesn't do anything evil in and of itself. But you can do a lot of damage with it. Or you can do a lot of good with it. It is like an objective thing that God has given us. Now, there's two uh, indirect things the Bible says about alcohol that I have to address. Number one, if you're underage, it's a sin. Sorry. That's just what the Bible says. You, know, you must obey the laws of the land. So, you know, have fun. Drive to Mexico if you want a couple years early and enjoy the gift of God. But in America, you have to obey the law of the land. And then the other indirect thing the Bible has to say about alcohol is this. Adding your own commandment to the Bible, for example, alcohol is wrong, is a sin. It's called legalism. It's called being a Pharisee. And Jesus was really tough on Pharisees. We are to obey God's laws and not people's unbiblical traditions. And I imagine many of us were raised in a pretty legalistic setting and uh, had a pretty legalistic view of alcohol. And that's just not biblical. It's not in the Bible. To, the Bible does not say, don't drink. The Bible just doesn't say that. And you know what? You don't fight legalism. This is important. I want to say this. You don't fight legalism by flaunting your freedom in Christ. That's immature and foolish. You fight legalism with the gospel. You fight legalism with the truth that's the blood of Jesus that makes me righteous. And listen, you fight legalism with true holiness. That is so important. I could not emphasize that more. You are so immature to just flaunt to old people, look, I can drink. That's so immature. You fight legalism with true holiness. That says, I will enjoy alcohol as a gift from God, and I will not get drunk. That's how you fight legalism. You only like make it worse when you're like, look at me, I'm a Christian and I can drink Instagram just posting. Look at me, I'm free in Christ. Beer and Bible study, I'm free in Jesus. Like, listen, you're being a fool. You're being a fool. You fight legalism by being truly holy and not sinning and enjoying the gifts of God. So I just wanna, that's a quick pause because a lot of us are not even 21 and the others of us are trying to think about this and do this right. So now that we've addressed that point on alcohol, yes, Jesus really made alcohol, uh, we're going to get to, like, this is the point. We've been a lot of on the periphery. What we're about to say is the point of this story, okay? Verse 10, we'll start verse 10. Brought the wine to the master of the feast and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Okay. The wine ran out at this party. As we said at the beginning, the wine runs out of life. And for a Jew who understood that wine was a gift from God and associated it with joy, this party was about to be cut short. And life is like that. Life is like this party. It will run out of wine. It's tainted. Things are broken. Our souls are broken. And we will look in vain to find joy in other places. But Jesus provides the wine. That's the point. 
Jesus can take water and make wine out of it. Jesus can take any and every dire and desperate situation and bring life and joy. And you know what? Jesus does it with like style, okay? He could have just provided enough wine. He provided so much wine. I just wanted, here's a quick math. Uh, there are six large jars, 30, we're going to say 30 gallons each. That's 180 gallons uh, each of, or no, 180 gallons total. Here's a wine bottle is a fifth of a gallon. Do you know how much wine Jesus provided? He said, hey, here's 900 bottles of wine for this party. Jesus provided 900 bottles of wine. That's like a bottle for every person at the biggest wedding ever. And a bottle per person is extreme, okay? Jesus, and here's the point though. Jesus provides an abundant, ridiculous amount of life. Over the top, ridiculous, full of life and joy and grace. Do you know what Jesus is like? You're like, Jesus, I need you. He's like, here's 900 bottles worth of joy and life. Life to the full. Listen, life with Jesus is not just adequate. It is life to the full. That is the point of this story. Life will run out of wine. You will be chasing joy everywhere and anywhere, and you will not find it. But Jesus provides a ridiculous, too much to drink. You can't, you can't get it. There's no, you could not do that. There's too, much, there's too much goodness in Jesus. And Jesus says, do you know what? The best metaphor, what I'm like, I'm like wine when it's enjoyed rightly. Psalm 4, 7 says to God, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Listen, just a beer and a burger for me is like, is Tra- where's Travis? There was one day Travis and I were in, what state were we in? Yeah, Louisville. We're in Louisville. Um, and that's, where is that? Kentucky? It's Kentucky. And uh, we were at this conference, and it was like lunchtime, and I was like on a walking kick because I just got a Fitbit, and Travis was like, maybe we should take an Uber. I'm like, no, let's walk. And it was like, so we were walking forever, like forever, and you're sweating, and you're carrying a backpack full of books, and we were just sweating and exhausted, and, and we sit down at this random burger place. You guys, it was like very close to the very best thing I have ever experienced. It was this burger, and it was like, what kind of bun was it? It was like a really soft brioche, and it was huge. And listen, this is maybe sound gross to you guys, but it was like the thickest, and I like it pretty rare. And then they had like brie cheese and like some kind of like fruity spread in there, and then like an IPA and fries. And I was so exhausted, and you guys... I sat there and was like, this is as good as it gets. As literally as good as it gets. It was as good as it has ever gotten for me right there with Travis. And in the book of Psalms, David says, you have put more joy in my heart than when their grain and wine abound. God is like that, more. And then in Psalm 16, he says, you make known to me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus is like, I will give you life to the full. And do you know how he does it specifically is by pouring out to us the gift of the Holy Spirit. In just one chapter, Jesus is gonna tell us that God gives the Spirit without measure. Just think about that. It's like a cup and it just keeps coming and it's, it's without measure. You can't measure it. That is how Jesus gives the gift of his presence in our life. You think 900 bottles of wine is something? God is like, I will give you my presence without measure. I won't stop. And Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. 
We are to be filled to the brim and overflowing constantly with the Spirit. And the book of Acts shows, hey, you need constant filling. And I will testify to that. Almost every morning I wake up and I'm, my poor wife experiences a lot of grumpiness. And I'm like, just not very happy. And I like need to go be with Jesus. I, I run out on this jar that is cracked and the life and joy spills out of it. And I wake up hating the world. And I need constant filling in the presence of God. And so I read his word and I pray. And that is why we do things like this on a Friday night and a Sunday morning. And wherever you're with people who love the Lord, you're like, I need filling. I need more of the Lord. And you know what one of the fruit of the Spirit is? Is joy. The Spirit's like, let me give you joy. And I, I want to address this. Please don't believe the lie that there is more joy apart from the Lord. That is the lie of Satan. That is literally the lie. You want life? God's holding out on you. Go somewhere else. Figure it out on your own. That is the most satanic lie there is. God is robbing you of joy in life, and you need to go find it on your own. That is satanic. And he's so smart and cunning. Like He will bait us with things that look good and are good. And he's like, but, but do it the way that you want, not the way the Lord has said. And that bait looks good, and there's literally a hook in there that will lead to death. And Jesus says that in John 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. When Satan offers you and tempts you, he is out to steal from you and kill you and destroy you. And then Jesus says, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And there are times when following Jesus, you're like, why do you say to do this? And why do you say to do that? And that looks like more joy. Listen, do what he says. You will have more joy. Satan's temptations will promise life and he's going, he's out to kill and rob your joy. And I love that Jesus is like, and I'm gonna go defeat Satan on the cross and disarm him. And I'm gonna provide life for people who acknowledge their, their sin, their rebellion and their need for me. And I will let them drink from the river of the water of life from my own spirit for eternity. And then the last thing, that's the main point, but John gives us one more thing in verse 11 when he closes. He says, chapter two, verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Jesus does this stuff to show his glory. He like did like a Genesis uh, miracle right there. Like he's like, I'm gonna create something from nothing. Just think about that. There were no grapes. There was no squishing and fermenting with that wine. It just became wine. Jesus is like, wine. Think about that. He's like, I will make wine from nothing. That's, it's a miracle. And do you know what Jesus is saying? It's because I'm God. I am God. And I can manifest my glory by showing you I can create with nothing. And listen, I have to ask this. This is a mark of Christian maturity. Is your desire for joy in God connected with a desire for the glory of God? Or is God just like your tool for your joy? Because that's called idolatry. Because that means God's glory is not the end. Like, I'm the end, and thank you, Jesus, for making me happy and providing me with wine. Is your desire for joy in God connected with a desire for God's glory? There's a better thing than your own joy in Jesus. It's the glory of Jesus. Are you living and seeking and doing everything you can for God's glory? glory. And Jesus isn't saying, hey, I'll do whatever I can, and you just do whatever you can to be, be happy. He's saying, I'll give you joy so that you can glorify me. I'll give you joy in God so that you can glorify God. 
He's, he doesn't, this is, this is important. He doesn't just say like, come to me and, and have life and do whatever you want. He says, come to me, have life and live for my glory. That is why you should live. I want you to show my glory to the world. And I love this. This is, uh, this is really good news. God's glory and your joy are not like uh, opposite ends. They like are related. When you enjoy Jesus, you glorify Jesus. You're like, man, Jesus is better than anything. That's like the best way to glorify somebody. Like, I love them and I want to be with them. Your joy and God's glory, like, wonderfully meet. As you say, I want to have the most joy in Jesus and I want Jesus to be glorified. Don't buy the lie that, like, following Jesus is only denying yourself and it just sucks, but at least you go to heaven. It's like joy for his glory. That is what following Jesus is. I'm going to come to him and I'm going to follow him and it's not always going to make sense, but I'm going to trust him and I trust that in the end there is joy and that he would be glorified. And listen, if you make God's glory you're like the purpose of your life, joy will like, it'll be like a byproduct. I just have to say that. When you're like, this doesn't even make sense right now, but I'm living that Jesus would be glorified, you will experience more joy in life when God and his glory is why you live. And so I'm going to close us uh, with just this last passage of a picture of what we're going to get to experience together. It's actually from Isaiah 25. So if you want to flip there, flip there. If you just want to like close your eyes and listen, it's going to be really good. And then um, we will close the sermon and enjoy the presence of God. Isaiah 25, verse 6 to 9. This is how it's all going to go down. Isaiah 25, 6 to 9 says this. On this mountaintop, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Jesus, we cannot wait for that day. We're going to see you face to face. And we're going to have new bodies and new capacities for joy. We're going to be with you. And all of our sins are going to be washed away. And all the effects of sin will be gone. And we will not cry anymore. And all the nations will be around you. And we will be your people. And Jesus, I just, I can barely believe it, but it's true. We will be at a wedding one day with you, Jesus. We will be at the wedding, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And we will celebrate what you our bridegroom have done, that you would pursue an unfaithful bride, that you would lay your life down, that you would make your bride pure with your own blood, that you would bring us to yourself and offer us more joy than anything else we could have ever found. Jesus, that's actually coming. That's a real day in history, and we are going to experience it together. And Jesus, I just pray right now for this second set of worship that we would repent of where we've been running for joy somewhere else, 
where we've been thinking we're smarter and we, we have better ideas of where joy in life is found, where we've taken a good gift of God and we said, yeah, but I want it my way. Holy Spirit, please do the gracious work of, of convicting us that we would have life, that we would be refreshed in your presence, that we would bring things that are in darkness out and give them to you and they would be washed white as snow. And then would we just enjoy you together, Lord? We, would we enjoy your presence? Would we worship you? Would we bow before you? Would we, would we sing to you, Lord? Thank you, Jesus, that you are the source of joy. You provide the wine. We love you, Lord.